Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is with us. Tom has been with us a number of times. Tom uh, is the director of public policy polling, a, a, uh, polling, a, a, a polling company that is located in Raleigh but does work nationwide and is well-respected for their polling work. Uh, Tom, welcome back to the program again. Hey, Mr. Curtis, it's good to be with you. And uh, again, uh, I don't know how long he's been calling me Mr. Curtis, but one of these days he's going to stop and that'll be fine too. Uh, well, Tom, uh, we are beginning to get into uh, the real live political season. It seems like it's a little earlier than usual, but maybe not. But uh, we want to take a look at the uh, presidential prospects. We also want to look at the uh, North Carolina situation. And we've got some other issues, and we'd like to get your input on a number of issues that uh, may affect the outcome of these elections. So I, I guess the best way to start is with the presidential uh, race, which is officially on. We've got some announced candidates, and we've got some that are in the, the wings sort of sitting around waiting. So let's let's start, uh, I guess, basically with a, a look at uh, how the Republican primaries uh, is standing. Of course, Donald Trump, former President Trump, has announced his candidacy. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, right now, those are the four. Um, let's uh, start with uh, uh, your assessment of where President, uh, former President Trump is standing and uh, what his prospects are, and then we can move on to the others. Well, I think we last spoke around the start of February, and things really have changed quite a bit over the last four months. Uh, what we were seeing earlier in the year was that things were really pretty closely contested between Donald Trump and uh, Ron DeSantis in terms of who people preferred for the Republican nomination. I think there were a couple reasons for that. Uh, one was that obviously Republicans underperformed in the midterm elections. Uh, and I think a lot of the blame for that went to Donald Trump, that people who Donald Trump had supported won the nominations for the Republicans in a lot of key races. And then those people ended up losing in the general election. So that was sort of leading to a little bit of uh, movement against Trumpism. Uh, but that has changed in a drastic way uh, over the last four months to the point where uh, former President Trump has clearly reasserted himself as the favorite in the Republican field, really by quite a wide margin. The, the current average of national polls uh, has President Trump at 54 percent uh, for the Republicans. And then the next closest is Ron DeSantis at only 21 percent. Uh, so you've gone from what was a pretty close race in the winter to now one as we head into the summer where Trump has a pretty uh, overwhelming advantage. But I think that's important to think about in a broader context, too, that things can change that just because uh, Donald Trump has a big lead right now doesn't mean that this is some sort of immutable thing where he's just going to coast to the nomination. Uh, the fact that things change so much in his favor between February and now, I think means there's at least some potential for things to move back against him over the next year. What about the candidacy of Nikki Haley and Tim Scott? How does that play into the overall Republican picture? Neither of them are making that big of an impact on the race yet. Uh, in the national polling, they're both at about 5%. Uh, 
And one thing that's pretty interesting is that there was recently a South Carolina poll where, of course, both uh, Senator Scott and Governor Haley hail from. uh, And Donald Trump was up by a lot in South Carolina, even with both of them having those strong uh, home state ties. So neither of them is really having much of an impact on the race at this point. Uh, It may be that they're not that well known on the national scene yet and that they have some room for growth. Uh, as they become more well acquainted with voters. But of course, at the same time, in in South Carolina, where voters are very well acquainted with them, they're not uh, doing that well yet. So it really, uh, even though there are a lot of Republicans sort of swarming around the race at this point, uh, it really is only Trump and DeSantis who are getting a whole lot of, of traction. And now let's look at the overall picture with Donald Trump while he is... Uh ahead with in the Republican primary, has he lost any ground with the so-called um, uh, independents or folks who voted for him in the last election with all the legal problems that he's had? I think the legal problems, I know this is going to sound kind of bizarre. I think the legal problems have actually really helped his political standing. Uh, and I saw some pretty clear evidence of that back at the end of March when he got indicted. Uh, we were doing daily tracking polls uh, in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, which was the most important uh, election that's happened across the country so far this year. And we did a poll the day before he got indicted, and about 70% of Republicans in Wisconsin said they had a favorable opinion of Trump. And then we did another poll the day after he got indicted, uh, and all of a sudden, 85% of Republicans in Wisconsin had a favorable opinion of Trump. So his favorability rating went up about 15 points in 48 hours after getting indicted. Uh, So I think that actually, you know, if you ask me what's the biggest thing that's changed between February and June to explain Trump becoming so much more dominant in the polling than he had been earlier, uh, I actually think the answer is that he got indicted. It had a, a very positive effect for him because I think that uh, that just caused people to sort of want to stick it to the to the Democrats, and there's nobody Democrats hate more than Trump. So uh, in a general election, uh, we haven't gotten to the list of Democratic candidates yet, but uh, how would Trump fare against any of the Democratic candidates? Is he, uh, uh, and especially the Electoral College count? It's really shaping up to be a remarkably similar race to 2020 in terms of how things are unfolding. Uh, Right now, when you look at the national polls between Trump and Biden, uh, Biden's usually on average, there's exceptions, but Biden's on average up by three or four points. Uh, And he won the popular vote in 2020 by four points just the same. Uh, So it's really something where people are pretty much dug in on how they voted uh, in 2020. So you might uh, you know, look at that and think, well, then Biden's going to win again if he's up by four points. But what we saw in 2020 was that even with Biden winning the popular vote by four points, it was extremely close in a lot of the most important swing states. Biden ended up winning uh, most of those important swing states, really with the exception of North Carolina. But it was very close in Pennsylvania. It was very close in Wisconsin. It was very close in Georgia. It was very close in Nevada. It was very close in Arizona, basically under a point in all of those key states. And Trump could lose the popular vote by four points again. But if he managed to do a point better 
in that set of states, he would win the Electoral College even while losing the popular vote by a pretty substantial margin. So uh, I think that we're headed for another uh, comparably competitive election to, to 2020, even with everything that's happened to Trump over the last two years. It's just not that many people who uh, were for Trump last time and aren't going to be for him this time. And there aren't that many people who were for Biden last time and aren't going to be for him this time. So uh, what that all adds up to is a bit of a wash. And, and that means that uh, even if Biden wins by a good amount overall in terms of how people vote, it could be very close in the electoral college. Again, we haven't gotten to discussion of the Democratic situation, but age is certainly a, a consideration for both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, as both of them are uh, approaching uh, that uh, 8-0 figure, uh, or in and around the 8-0 figure. Uh, and uh, there is concern that uh, maybe neither one would end up serving their full term because of age. Has that shown up yet as a factor? Well, it's an interesting situation where I think that definitely, uh, in general, people would like their choices to be somebody other than Biden and Trump. And they do think that Biden and Trump are too old, uh, but they just don't find any of the alternatives all that intriguing. Certainly on the Democratic side, both of the other people who are in the race right now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson, uh, really aren't people to be taken seriously at all. So even though a fair number of Democrats, when you ask them generically, would they like Biden to be the candidate again or would they prefer someone else? They'll say they prefer someone else to that, but you have to have someone else. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, espousing anti-vaccine views and Marianne Williamson espousing whatever it is she espouses are not things that Democratic primary voters consider to be uh, compelling alternatives. Obviously, on the Republican side, uh, there are a lot more serious alternatives that voters could gravitate to. Uh, but so far, in, in spite of any concerns there might be about uh, Trump's age, they still find him more compelling than the other choices. One thing that's been really interesting over the last few months uh, is that there's a, a national organization that's sort of uh, devoted to moving beyond the uh, two-party divide called uh, No Labels, and they want to run a ticket for president where there would be a Democratic candidate uh, for president and a Republican candidate for vice president that would sort of try to uh, appeal to voters in the middle. And uh, the Democratic establishment in particular has been very down on this idea uh, because they think that it would just have the impact of uh, eventually throwing the election to Trump, basically a situation where there's not enough people in the middle that a ticket like that could actually win the presidency, uh, but there's more people who sort of would otherwise vote for Biden who are open to something like that than there are people who would otherwise vote for Trump. And we've definitely seen some evidence of that in our own polling. Uh, last fall, we did a poll where we tested Biden as the Democrat, Trump as the Republican, and Liz Cheney as an independent candidate for president. And Liz Cheney got something like 18%, which is actually pretty impressive. Uh, but then Biden was down to Trump by like 10 points in that scenario because two-thirds, three-fourths of the people who said that they would vote for Liz Cheney as an independent otherwise would have voted for Biden if the choice was Biden or Trump. So you can see why Democrats are averse to an effort like that. Kamala Harris is uh, has been a, a controversial, I say controversial figure, 
controversial in the sense that a lot of people think she is not adding to the ticket. Have you done any polling on that? Um, I mean, she's definitely not an overwhelmingly popular figure, but it's kind of something where people just aren't going to vote on the vice president whatsoever. So uh, does Kamala Harris necessarily uh, get very many people to vote Democratic who wouldn't otherwise vote Democratic? Probably not. But I don't think that people who otherwise would vote for Joe Biden against Donald Trump are saying, I will not vote for Biden because I have such a, a problem with Kamala Harris. I do think if uh, if 2028 comes along and Harris runs for president again, I do think that it'll probably be uh, a competitive Democratic field as opposed to a coronation for her like you might sometimes have for the vice president, because I th think there are uh, uh, enough people who would think that there need to be more choices. But uh, I think that she's pretty much um, uh, a net neutral uh, for the ticket as it stands. Uh, part of what you said did not make it, but uh, we apologize for that technical glitch. We are recording this program in advance, and we're doing it by Zoom. And so from time to time, we have those little breaks. Our guest is Tom Jensen, who's the Director of Public Policy Polling. And we'll be back with another segment right after we take time out for these messages. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is our guest. He's the director of public policy polling. He's been in that role now for how long have you been with public policy polling? You're getting to be an old man. <laughs> 16 years. 16 years. Well, uh, it's uh, time flies when you're having fun, I guess. Um, <laughs> so uh, we spent the first segment talking about the presidential outlook. Uh, let's turn to North Carolina. We have an interesting race for governor. Uh, we have uh, some announced candidates. We have some candidates that are in the wing. Uh, so let's talk about first the Republican uh, situation, because we have Mark Robinson, Dale Falwell, and Mark Walker in the race. And there's still discussion about some unannounced potentials. 
for example, we hear the name Steve Troxer, who's the Agricultural Commissioner. We hear Mandy Cohen from time to time, and we hear Sherry Beasley. So um, give us your handicap of that situation. Well, it really uh, seems like on the Republican side, even though there are three serious candidates running, Mark Robinson is a pretty overwhelming front runner right now, uh, even more so than Trump is for the Republicans in the presidential race. Uh, and the handful of polls that there have been on the Republican nomination contest, Robinson averages about 50 percent uh, of the Republican vote. And Dale Falwell and Mark Walker are both in single digits. Uh, and then you have about uh, a quarter to a third of voters who still say they don't have an opinion one way or the other. Uh, so clearly, Robinson's built up a pretty strong brand with conservative voters in the state, uh, and they do have a very strong inclination towards him uh, to be their candidate uh, next year. Uh, so I think you're going to see Mark Robinson on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, uh, Josh Stein, I think, has done a, a pretty good job of sort of clearing the field so far. Uh, he's proven to be a good fundraiser. People know that uh, it would be hard to go against him in the primary just from a resources standpoint. So, so far, the Democratic field has uh, has has stayed pretty empty other than him. I'm sure somebody else will run uh, and create at least a little bit of a choice in the primary. Uh, but I do think that uh, it's unlikely anybody's actually going to uh, challenge Stein, who would have a, a real chance of denying him nation. And it could be a help thing for him to have a competitive primary anyway. In 2016, when he was first running for attorney general, uh, he had a primary that he was going to win. But he still had to take it seriously. And it gave him a good chance to introduce him to had the primary election. So he could end up with a, a challenge to, to get started, but uh, not one where he would actually lose. Are, what names are you hearing that might consider entering? Uh, Steve Troxler, the Ag Commissioner, is one that we hear from time to time. Do you think he might enter the Republican situation? And if he did, would that change the uh, dynamics of that race? I don't think there's anybody else who could get in on the Republican side that would really change the dynamics of the race. Uh, one thing that really speaks to that is we actually did some polling last fall where we tested Senator Tillis as a possible candidate uh, for governor. And even he, after being Speaker of the House and eight years in the Senate and all that sort of profile, he trailed Mark Robinson in a hypothetical primary contest by over 30 points. So when you see that somebody of that stature still would be at a pretty significant disadvantage in a Republican primary you can sort of see where it's unlikely that anybody else getting in would really move the needle. Uh, and beyond that, I think that you see a similar dynamic with both Trump and Robinson as the front runner, which is that if more establishment, more moderate sort of Republican types really want to keep either of them from winning the nomination, it doesn't help to have so many different candidates challenging them. Uh, if there was really a world where Robinson was going to lose or Trump was going to lose, it would probably need to be a one-on-one -on -one contest where everybody who didn't want Trump, everybody who didn't want Robinson could just line up behind one candidate. And instead, you're seeing the opposition to them sort of more fragmented. And that just makes uh, Trump and Robinson's prospects even better than they already were. So let's assume that it ends up being Mark Robinson versus Josh Stein. Uh, how do you see that race ending up? 
So there's really two scenarios I can see for how that race would unfold. Uh, the, the number one scenario, and certainly the one that I think is the most likely, is just that it would be yet another toss-up race. Most key statewide races in North Carolina over the last decade have been toss-ups. Somebody usually wins 51 to 49 or something like that. We've seen that in uh, most of our recent Senate races. Uh, we certainly saw that in the governor's race in 2016. We saw that in the presidential race in 2012 and 2020. We are a 50-50 state. The Republicans end up slightly on top more often than the Democrats do, but it's always very competitive. So that is the most likely scenario for the governor's race. Uh, I do not see a scenario where Mark Robinson could end up winning the governor's race by a substantial margin. I don't really think that there is a uh, Republican blowout pathway. I actually do think that there's a little bit of a Democratic blowout pathway where Josh Stein would end up winning the race by a pretty substantial margin. And I say that based on the results of some uh, actual elections that happened for governor across the country last year. Uh, in both Michigan and Pennsylvania last year, which are, of course, 50-50 states, just like North Carolina is, um, the Democratic candidates for governor ended up winning by double digits uh, in their races. And the reason they won by double digits is because voters thought that the Republican candidates were just too extreme. And I do think that there's a possibility that voters could come to the conclusion that Mark Robinson is just too extreme. Uh, even though Mark Robinson's been lieutenant governor for a little while now, he's still not really that well-defined to voters in the state. What we saw in those Michigan and Pennsylvania races was that they actually started out pretty close in the way that you would expect in swing states. And then the more voters sort of became aware of everything that the Republican candidates stood for in the run-up to the election, the less and less competitive those elections actually got to the point where Democrats ended up winning by blowout margins. I don't think that's going to happen in North Carolina, uh, but I do think that Stein winning by a lot is a lot more likely than Robinson winning by a lot. Is it too early to talk about potential candidates for lieutenant governor in North Carolina? Uh, you know, I think those fields are kind of filling out right now. Uh, but the 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 baseline outcome of all races in recent North Carolina politics has essentially been that uh, either the Republicans win everything 51 to 49 or the Democrats win everything 51 to 49. Uh, and I think that uh, what you see in a race like lieutenant governor is that the individual candidates don't tend to end up mattering that much. It's really something where uh, people for those kinds of offices just kind of vote in line with the general partisanship of the state. So whoever, whoever the Republicans and Democrats end up putting forward, if it's a 51-49 year for Republicans, Lieutenant Governor will go along with that. If it's a 51-49 year for Democrats, Lieutenant Governor will go along with that. Uh, it's hard for candidates at that level to really establish a personal brand that allows their race to just go different than the general tenor of things. Well, interesting. And so um, we've taken a good look at the North Carolina gu gubernatorial race. We've taken a look at the presidential outlook. Um, we didn't spend a lot of time when we were talking about the presidential outlook as far as any potential candidates that might run against Joe Biden. I think you indicated that it's highly unlikely that any would have enough support. Would you like to comment on that so so we can sort of wrap that issue up also? 
Yeah, just to make one more point about Biden and one more point about Stein, uh, you know, there's certainly an openness among rank and file Democratic primary voters to vote for an alternative to Biden. But the the big thing for Biden is that I don't think any of the people who would actually be serious candidates are interested in running. You think about somebody like Kamala Harris, somebody like Pete Buttigieg, somebody like Elizabeth Warren. They all have other things that they're doing where they're really sort of allies of the administration. So they're not likely to challenge an administration that they're really a part of. So I just even if people are open to the possibility of somebody other than Biden, I just don't think anybody serious is going to claim that mantle. And I just want to make one other point about Josh Stein. Uh, I feel like 90 percent of the oxygen on the governor's race goes to to Mark Robinson. And understandably so. Uh, He obviously would be the state's first black governor. And he has a predilection for saying things that are uh, uh, catch a lot of attention, whether it's stuff that makes people happy or makes people mad. It rarely makes people bored. Uh, So I think Mark Robinson gets a lot of attention because of that. But we were talking about how, you know, usually most of those council of state races go in one direction. And in both 2016 and 2020, Republicans won almost all of those council of state races. But in both of those years, Josh Stein managed to get elected as attorney general. So I think the fact that Josh Stein won in those years when most of the Democratic ticket was losing speaks to him being an above average quality Democratic candidate. So even though he doesn't get talked about nearly as much as Robinson, I just think that's uh, worth noting that uh, Josh Stein has actually put together a pretty good track record of performance in his uh, statewide races in his career to date. Well, we've talked about this a number of times, the uh, number of people who are registered as unaffiliated. Of course, most people who are unaffiliated obviously lean Republican or lean Democrat. They have registered unaffiliated. Uh, how do you feel that that uh, will affect the outcome of the upcoming gubernatorial or presidential election? Well, it's a very interesting situation with unaffiliated voters right now. Uh, Generally, what you see happen with unaffiliated is they just vote for whoever's out of power. So uh, systemically, you would think that Republicans would have an advantage with unaffiliated voters for next year, with Democrats holding both the White House and the governor's mansion at the current time. But what has really upended basically everything in American politics over the last year uh, is the efforts that Republicans at multiple levels of government have made to interfere with abortion rights. Uh, We saw Democrats do a lot better than expected in the midterm elections last fall because of abortion rights. And in the elections that have happened so far across the country this year, Democrats have done a lot better than expected because of a backlash to Republican efforts to, to take away abortion rights. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the biggest election so far this year was the Supreme Court in Wisconsin. Uh, They had a seat up that determined whether Democrats or Republicans were going to have control of that court. And of course, Wisconsin's a 50-50 swing state, just like North Carolina is. Democrats won that Supreme Court race by 11 points, largely running on the issue of abortion. So you would think that Republicans across the country might look at something like that and think that they should not be uh, further getting voters uh, fired up about uh, the possibility of, of minimizing abortion rights. Of course, in North Carolina, Republicans have taken the total opposite of that tack, where they did uh, pass a stricter abortion law, even though polling made it pretty clear that it was not popular with voters in the state. Uh, and I think that is a, a real benefit to both Josh Stein and Joe Biden and the Democratic ticket in general in North Carolina, 
that abortion has basically been the issue that uh, Democrats have been able to use to motivate middle of the road voters to vote for them the most here over the last 12 months. And instead of sort of quieting down on that issue, North Carolina Republicans doubled down on it. So I think that makes unaffiliated voters much more up for grabs than they would usually be in this situation where usually unaffiliated are voting for change. And that would generally be to Republicans benefit next year might not be the case with all the furor over abortion. And of course, uh, that uh, fervor could cool off somewhat because it's a long time between now and Election Day. Um, so we'll have to watch and see. Our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. So far, we've looked at the presidential outlook, the North Carolina gubernatorial outlook. We want to talk next uh, about the issues that could affect voting nationally and statewide. And we will do that when we come back after taking a break. You stay tuned. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mind. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Carolina Newsmakers, Tom Jensen, who is for 16 years, been the director of public policy polling. A nationwide polling outfit happens to be located in North Carolina has uh, been doing polling now, as we said, for 16 years. Um, they uh, uh, do all sorts of polling, but the majority of our questions so far have had to do with the uh, outlook for the presidential primaries and also the North Carolina gubernatorial race. We want to talk a little bit now. We've talked about candidates a good bit, uh, Tom. I, I'd like to now turn around and talk about issues uh, I'll start off with saying, uh, are issues as important as they used to be, or are people basically confused and it's more of a popularity contest? It's definitely something where individual issues don't matter as much as they used to because people are so much more just polarized along partisan lines than they used to be. Uh, we obviously have such a tradition in North Carolina of people really ticket splitting. Uh, you know, in the past where people would generally vote uh, Republican 
at the federal level and would vote Democratic at the state level. And you'd have lots of people in any given election sort of assessing national issues and deciding who to vote for and assessing state issues and deciding who to vote for. And now everything's just been very nationalized. Uh, and that's something that uh, first started with President Obama uh, being in office. I don't think it was his fault, but uh, reactions to him were just so strong one way or another uh, that it led to people sort of running off into their own camps to a greater extent than had been the case before. Uh, and then that trend accelerated even more under President Trump, uh, where people just kind of weren't willing to uh, to split their tickets in the way that they had once been willing to. And they didn't assess things. They didn't give a lot of careful thought to who the candidates were in a given race or what the issues were in a given race. They just voted Democratic up and down the line if they didn't like Trump, and they voted Republican up and down the line if they did like Trump. That's led to some very interesting realignments across the country. Uh, last month, uh, Republicans lost the mayor's offices in both uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and Colorado Springs, Colorado, which on the surface of it, you might say, well, what does it matter? Uh, but the upshot of that is that only two of the 35 biggest cities in the country now have Republican mayors, whereas at the turn of the century, New York City had a Republican mayor, Los Angeles had a Republican mayor, Durham and Raleigh both had Republican mayors when uh, this century started. But because uh, because of this sort of partisan polarization, big cities now are only willing to vote for Democrats. But there's a flip side of that, too, which is that Republicans have control of more county commissioner seats in rural counties, uh, both all over the country and also in particular in North Carolina, than they ever did before, because those rural areas that used to maybe vote conservative uh, for president, vote conservative for Senate, but were willing to vote for Democrats at the local level, they are now no longer willing to vote for Democrats at the local level, just like people in the big cities are no longer willing to vote for Republicans at the local level. So everything is just kind of going through a Washington, D.C. lens now, uh, where it didn't used to be that way to this extent. I've always attributed this line to, to uh, former President Clinton. I'm not sure if uh, my... Uh attribution is correct or not, but I, someone once said, and I thought it was him, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, so we are in a period of inflation right now uh, that could change uh, within the year before the election. But how important is inflation in determining how people feel about the candidates they're going to vote? Yeah, I think that uh, the economy certainly is a huge issue. And one thing that we've talked about before that I think is still the case is that gas prices have a huge impact on uh, people's psychology in particular, sort of as a, uh, as, a, as a litmus for the entire economy, whether that's really something economists would think should be the case or not. Uh, gas prices were over $5 last July. That was when gas prices really spiked. And that's when we saw Joe Biden have the worst approval numbers of his entire administration. Uh, we were finding that even a third of people who voted for Biden were not saying that they approved of his job performance last summer when gas prices were over five dollars. Uh, and then as gas prices went down closer to the election, I think that was one of the things that helped Democrats to not do as poorly as the party in power usually does in midterm elections uh, is that those gas prices went down. 
So to your point about the economy, I think that uh, it absolutely is very important and how people are feeling about their personal economic situation will have a big impact on how they feel about voting. Uh, But just to sort of briefly touch back on something we were talking about in the previous segment, this abortion issue has given Democrats something to make the election about more than just the economy. Uh, If the midterm last year had just been a a referendum on whether people were happy with Biden and how they felt about inflation and, and stuff like that, Republicans would have done far better in the election than they did because people aren't happy with President Biden. They do disapprove of the job he's doing. They are unhappy with inflation. They uh, Those things uh, do have an impact. But Democrats have been able to effectively paint Republicans as just being too extreme on social issues, particularly because of the stuff that they've tried to do on abortion. And I think that's had a serious mitigating factor for Democrats of some of these economic issues that would usually really hurt them. Uh, I think definitely uh, abortion has just sort of upended uh, the extent to which Republicans would have otherwise been able to politically benefit from uh, inflation being so bad and the president's approval being so low. Another issue, I guess, uh, that is in the news a good bit, sort of off and on in many respects, is whether it's front burner or side burner, and that's the Ukraine situation. How does America feel about that? I think it's something that, honestly, most Americans just aren't thinking about very much on a, a daily basis one way or another. I don't think it's a situation that voters have strong feelings about uh, one way or another. We're really uh, in a situation where in the 16 years that I've had this job, I think that foreign policy issues are sort of at a a lower level of priority for voters than I can ever remember them being. Uh, When I first started out here, uh, the war in Iraq and issues related to that were the number one thing on the table. Uh, And now when you ask people what's most important to them, I don't think that anything having to do with our relations with other countries or the Ukraine situation would uh, measure very high on the table beyond uh, the economy. I think voters beyond the economy and abortion, I think voters are just so much more focused on crime. They're so much more focused on gun issues, uh, even more focused on the environment uh, than they are foreign policy stuff. So I think that the Ukraine situation is, is pretty much a wash politically because I just don't think it's something that voters are giving a lot of thought to one way or the other. Another issue that has uh, some controversy to it is the uh, issue of student debt and possible relief for student debt. How does the public feel about that issue? Uh, It's something that voters had a little bit of a sort of flurry of interest in last uh, September when the student loan cancellation package was first announced. And it was something that voters were relatively closely divided about. It was sort of an interesting issue where uh, people started out being pretty strongly in support of canceling the student loan debt. Uh, But then the Republican sort of ecosystem made it pretty clear that they were opposed to it. And I think that Republicans who didn't have strong feelings about the issue, uh, who then sort of saw that Republican voices that they take their lead from had we're having a glitch a right problem now. Go ahead. with it. They sort of went from softly approving of it to then saying that they did saying that they they went from saying that they sort of softly approved of it to saying that they disapproved of it. Uh, and that led to a situation where. 
We're having a glitch again. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for our listeners, we're doing this program by Zoom, and from time to time, we have a little dropout with Tom. Tom, are you back? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I guess I am. Um. Uh. So what uh, we've mentioned uh, the Ukraine, we've mentioned inflation, we've mentioned gas prices. What are the other issues that could affect how people feel about their uh, chosen candidate in the presidential or the gubernatorial race next year? Um, I think a big issue is going to be crime. Uh, I think that other than and besides inflation and uh, and economic indicators that aren't looking great, I think one of the biggest things that you'll see Republicans sort of pushing in their message is uh is that crime has gotten out of control and that Republicans really need to be in charge uh, in in order to make sure that uh, there's more in law and order than there is right now, uh, at least in in sort of their interpretation of the world. So I think that's something that you're going to see Republicans pushing really hard on is that uh, we we need people in office who are going to be tougher on crime than Democrats are. So a big one that you'll see Republicans pushing uh, I think Democrats, especially with the number of mass shootings that we've seen in, in recent years, I think you're going to see Democrats sort of uh, focusing more on the need for kind of common sense gun laws. Uh, and in the states where Democrats got control of the state legislature in last fall's election, uh, in places like Michigan and Minnesota, uh, you've seen a lot more uh, gun laws getting passed. And I think that you're going to see Democrats want to sort of take that uh, agenda national. But both of those issues sort of just speak to the polarization of the country and how it uh, revolves around issues, because I think you're basically going to see something where Republicans want to talk about crime and Democrats don't. Democrats want to talk about gun laws and Republicans don't. It's not so much where you're going to see both sides agree that some particular thing is a big issue and then debate which side of the issue they think is better. Uh, It's more something where you're going to see each side sort of trying to determine what issues are important because they know that some issues are strong for them and some aren't. You mentioned debates. Uh, Last year or the last couple of elections, it seems that debates have less and less to do with the outcome of the election than maybe in previous years to that. Yeah, I think that, uh, sorry, I I, I missed your question. Uh, Debates. Uh, are they as effective in changing people's views about candidates as they were, say, maybe uh, two or three elections ago? No, I really don't think they are. Uh, debates used to be something that obviously had such huge ratings nationally where everybody was watching them. Uh, and you don't have that kind of situation anymore the way you used to where the the viewership for them is just so ubiquitous. So it's harder for them to to make a difference in that regard. Uh, And then you also have uh, just uh, what we've spoken about a few times, that voters are just so unopen to changing their minds about anything. Uh, They're just dug in on their positions, and they don't really care what either side has to say about anything. They're not open to changing their minds. There's nothing that somebody can say in a debate that's going to persuade them away from how they already feel about how a particular election's going. One thing that's going to be really interesting is that the Republicans thought that all the debates Uh, for president in in 2020 were unfair, uh, and they may just choose not to even engage with them this time around. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, if we even have debates this go around. 
Well, it's, it's interesting. And of course, there are times where the debate is the only chance that can, uh, especially in some of the secondary races, uh, where people have an opportunity to even see the candidates. And, and so maybe debates move down to the lieutenant governor level and council of state level. And those uh, races where uh, the public doesn't have much of a chance to get the views and opinions of those candidates who are running because uh, so much focus is on the presidential election and the gubernatorial race, and they're buying most of the political time that's available on radio and television and and, uh, and controlling social media. Probably want to talk a little bit about social media when we uh, have our final segment of how social media and uh, digital advertising is uh, affecting the outcome of the uh, the races in the past and what the future might be for those two particular forms of campaigning. Our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have our final segment with Tom. So you stay tuned. As an 18 year old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school and I didn't do it. 10 years later at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in Spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is our guest. He is the Director of Public Policy Polling and has been a frequent guest on our program. In our first segment, we took a look at uh, Tom's views on the presidential race and then the North Carolina gubernatorial race, and then we spent some time talking about issues. Tom, I want to talk a little bit now about uh, social media and how that has become a way of campaigning that is not as open to the general public's view as is television or radio advertising. Uh, that and direct mail, of course, are highly specialized. Are you seeing more candidates relying on social media and how are they using it? Well, I definitely think that one of the, the biggest thing that candidates are trying to figure out this day and age is especially how to reach out to young people uh, who definitely aren't consuming media and getting campaign ads in the places that have traditionally been the case. Uh, I know people whose entire job is just to figure out how to reach out to voters on TikTok and that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that that whole sort of evolution in terms of campaign ads 
has contributed to some of this division in the country that we're talking about because you can really uh, tailor your message to just a very sort of select small group of voters. Uh, and you don't have to as much come up with messages that you can sort of blast out to the entire population and try to win them over. Uh, so there's this really there's really this ability to sort of just uh, single out small groups with very targeted messages. Uh, and I think that that has perhaps uh, led to some of this segmentation in the electorate where there's not as much of a need uh, to sort of come up with ways of talking about things that appeal to everybody. Well, that leads us to another question about, uh, and you mentioned it, young people are certainly changing their habits as far as media usage, but uh, so are older folks as far as getting their news. At one time, the CBS Evening News, the NBC Evening News, and the ABC Evening News was the primary source of information. Now we have cable channels that definitely uh, uh, not only uh, report news, but also report opinion mixed with the news. Uh, and more and more people are getting their views that way. Uh, this is, in my opinion, a little dangerous because people are, are getting their whatever views they already have are being uh, perhaps enhanced by the coverage they're watching. Uh, do you see that changing or is this going to be a continuing trend? Well, I agree with you for sure that it's problematic, but I, I do not think that we're going to see that trend reverse. I think one thing that was really fascinating sort of in the conservative media ecosystem uh, over the last two years was that Fox News had obviously so dependently, dependably told Republicans whatever it was that they wanted to hear. Uh, and then they called the election for Biden in 2020. And all of a sudden you had these Republicans moving over to Newsmax because Fox News wasn't partisan enough. Uh, and I do think that this is something that's a, a little bit more of a trend on the Republican side to really want partisan news sources than uh, the Democratic side. But it's definitely an across the board thing. Uh, people really don't so much want that sort of neutral down the middle Walter Cronkite uh, at 630 type of uh, news consumption that they had a couple generations ago where everybody was sort of uh, getting the same news from the same people. And, and I think that maybe contributed some to Americans more being on the same page uh, across the board, at least than they are now. Uh, but I think that those trends of people just wanting to sort of hear what they already believe or want to get outraged about things that already sort of feed into their existing belief system. Uh, I think those are trends that are just going to accelerate rather than uh, rather than sort of even back out. Uh, so we may see that this just becomes an even bigger problem in the years ahead. I want to shift back to uh, the presidential outlook just a while. You mentioned a few uh, in the first segment that President Trump's percentage of of, uh, of the vote in the Republican primary has increased to 54 percent. Uh, to uh, Ron DeSantis at 21%. What would you advise Ron DeSantis to do? What would it be his best opportunity to close that gap? That is a, a great question, and I'm, I'm sure one that just about everybody in mainstream Republican land is, is really trying to grapple with and having a hard time uh, coming up with answers to. Uh, and this is going to be sort of a lame answer, but I don't think you can beat Trump at his own game. 
Like I remember at one point during the 2016 race, uh, Marco Rubio started trying to call him name. It started trying to call Trump names and it just made Rubio look really small and ridiculous. So I think the best thing DeSantis can do, and it might work and it might not, but I think it's the best thing that he can do is just go out there, be the best version of himself that he can possibly be and try to really sell a story to the Republican electorate that he's who can actually bring about effective conservative change. And he has a good success story from his time in office in, uh, in Florida to tell about what he's done. And I think the way that he's going to beat Trump is to convince voters that he can be more effective than Trump, that uh, you know Trump might say stuff that makes them feel better, but DeSantis can actually do stuff that makes them feel better and deals with the issues that they care about and that sort of thing. And then the other thing that I think DeSantis has to really try to do is just outwork Trump. You know, Trump likes to come in on, on his plane and, uh, you know, do his rally and get back on the plane. He's not a very hardworking person, to be quite frank. And if DeSantis is willing to go out there and have 10 events a day and uh, just be talking to a, a lot more people than Trump is, you sort of just hope through word of mouth from all those sort of personal contacts that people start to be open to thinking about something other than Trump. I'm not saying that any of that necessarily is going to work. Trump might be an immovable obstacle, but I think that DeSantis sort of not thinking so much about how do I cut down Trump and just thinking about what do I do to make myself as appealing as possible. I think if there is a path for him, that's probably what it is. When we were discussing Republican candidates, we mentioned Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. We did not mention former Vice President Pence. Is he just totally out of the uh, uh, of the picture? He's down in that four or five percent range, just like Haley and Scott are. Um, he just doesn't have much of a constituency. Uh, I'm, I'm not clear on uh, what Pence's angle is, because uh, obviously he was Trump's vice president. So if you love the Trump administration, you're still going to vote for Trump. So there's not really an opening for him there. Uh, and I think DeSantis uh, has more of that lane of sort of the more competent Republican who sort of conducts himself in a more professional manner. Uh, so I'm just, I mean, Pence can run. I'm just not really clear on what his angle is, what, what, what's going to cause voters to move over to him. Also, you mentioned earlier the no label movement, which is made up of uh, some Republicans and Democrats who are in the middle who are trying to essentially, uh, I guess, form a uh, coalition that would appeal to middle America. Uh, but basically, as you pointed out, and I'd like a further comment on that, it probably would play into the hands of Donald Trump in a race against Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that when you look at who moderates vote for uh, within our elections, Moderates vote for Democrats more than Republicans. That's actually true pretty much across the board. The reason that uh, Republicans win a good percentage of the time is that there's more conservatives than liberals. So the fact that there's more conservatives than liberals makes up for the fact that Democrats usually vote for moderate, that moderates usually vote for Democrats. But what that means is that if there was a moderate choice, uh, that person would be getting a lot more votes from Democrats than they would be from Republicans. And that would have the likely impact of just handing uh, Trump the White House, because in all those states we've talked about, like uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, 
it would take very little to turn the one or two point wins that Biden's had Biden had in those states in 2020 uh, into one or two point losses. And certainly an independent candidate taking even just 10 percent of the vote, but mostly getting that 10 percent from moderates who would otherwise vote for Democrats. Uh, that would be enough to sink Democratic prospects in the election. We've gone the entire program and uh, the uh, Hispanic vote and the black vote has not been mentioned as a factor in the election. Are, are those uh, two minority groups just not as potent as they were at one time or uh, are we just overlooking it? No, they're extremely important. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tackle them one by one because there's sort of different angles that are important with each of them. Uh, what's really important with the black vote is the level of black voter participation. Uh, in 2022, black voters, uh, especially in North Carolina, just did not turn out at a very high rate to vote. And when you look at the legislative seats that Democrats lost in North Carolina in 2022, most of them were in districts, uh, especially in the eastern part of the state, that have very heavy back black populations and black voters just did not turn out to vote at a very high level. So I think Democrats have a lot of work to do to make sure that black voters are motivated. And I think the new chair of the North Carolina Democratic Party, uh, Anderson Clayton, is very committed to doing the kind of organizing in rural communities that might help turn around this uh, this kind of poor turnout from black voters that we've seen in uh, recent elections. Uh, Hispanic voters, it's a, a very interesting thing because uh, they, from 20. 2008 to 2016 in particular were a very reliably Democratic uh, voting group, and they've moved a little bit more towards voting for Republicans over the last couple election cycles. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if that trend continues or not in 2024. Uh, certainly in states like Nevada and Arizona, Democrats winning two-thirds, three-fourths of the Hispanic vote is very important to Democrats being able to win those states. If they can't do that, those states may well end up back in the Republican column. So uh, Democrats uh, with black voters really need to, to make sure that turnout's good. With Hispanic voters, they really need to do a good job persuading Hispanic voters to continue to vote for Democrats at the same level that they did when Barack Obama was president. Got about uh, 45 seconds for you to answer this question. Is polling getting to be more and more difficult? Uh, yes and no. Uh, in terms of uh, sheer accuracy of polling, 2022 was actually one of the most accurate years for polling ever. The, the polls last year were really on the mark about what ended up happening in the election. And that was kind of a big deal because uh, after 2020, there were lots of declarations that polling was dead. And I think uh, in 2022, we showed that polling is not dead. But is it getting more challenging? Absolutely. Uh, fewer and fewer people answer polls than they did in the past. You're a lot of the time in a situation where only one in a hundred people who you contact for a poll will actually answer it. Uh, and that's something that's been on an ever gradual decline. Uh, so it's more poll, uh, more expensive and more time consuming to get enough people to complete polls. Uh, so that does make it very challenging. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Tom Jensen, Director of Public Policy Polling. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com to hear the entire broadcast or just segments you might have missed if you're listening to the half-hour version of the program. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, who promises me faithfully that he will have another interesting guest next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So on behalf of uh, 
our entire staff, and on behalf of Jason. We hope that you have a very good week, and we'll look forward to having you with us again next week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.